0: Sports Talk, Talk New, York New York with your, with your hosts, Mark, Mark Rosenman Rosen and, and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, the Phoenix Tube Company, the law firm of Declator Cohen and DePrisco, Solomon Jewelers, and General Needs Charity, serving our homeless veterans with dignity. And now, here are your hosts, Mark and A.J.
1: And Joining us now is a man who was a wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders for 14 seasons, later an assistant coach with the Black and Silver. He retired an NFL player after the 1978 season, then played one additional season in the Canadian Football League for the Montreal Alouettes in 1980. He was one of the most sure-handed and consistent receivers of his era with a reputation for making spectacular catches. He is also known for running smooth, precise pass routes. Those attributes paved the way for his induction into both the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1988 and the College Football Hall of Fame in 19. It is an absolute pleasure and honor to welcome Hall of Famer number twenty-five, the legendary Fred <laughs> Bolitnikoff to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Fred.
2: Hey, how are you guys doing? Thank you very much for having me on. You know, yeah, geez, yeah, you, you guys are working, huh? <laughs> wow,
1: <laughs> we're, we're trying. So, first off, how are you holding up during during these crazy times right now?
2: Well, you know, I mean, the, you know, it is what it is. You know, with the virus and you know, you're only going a few things. Maybe go do a little grocery shopping, but that's about it. You know, nothing, nothing else going on. Just kind of waiting for all these stage one, stage two, whatever stages they have the the our, our state in different cities to be able to go out and mingle. So that's right. that's probably going to be a little while. But you know, it's uh, you know it's boring. You know, you <laughs> wish you can get out a little bit more. You know, some things are opening up a little bit now and then. Uh, so it's getting a little bit better, but still. You know, something that nobody expected. And, uh, you know, we just got to go with it.
1: For sure. You know, it's interesting. On last week's show, we had Steve Grogan, and his high school football stadium is named after him. So keeping the streak alive is you were a standout football player, basketball player, baseball, ran track, champion high jumper. You earned all-city honors in basketball and baseball for Technical Memorial High School, now Central Tech, whose athletic field, just like in Steve's case, is named after you. So what does that honor mean to you?
2: Oh, it means a lot, you know. I mean, it's something that, you know, with you know being born and raised in Erie, obviously, and being from there, I'm so really proud of that. And then to have my name on a the field there is just something special that, you know, you never dream about it, or you never even think about, it, and then all of a sudden it happens, and it, it's it's a good feeling because you know what we're doing a lot with it. You know, we have a lot planned. Hopefully, we can get back there in September. Uh, to really do a good job on a brand new field, a brand new track for the kids and uh, give them something to be proud of, you know, being part of that. With my name on it, you know, it just gives you a little bit more more push to really do a lot more.
1: So what were some of the fundamentals you learned playing for the coaches at Tech, and and which was the one that laid the foundation for your future success?
2: Well, I I had a good coach with... uh, Al calabrese and a guy named Ray dombrowski uh who both have since obviously passed away, but you know I learned a lot from both of them because of the discipline because uh you know with they were uh, Al was a basketball coach also, but just the discipline and in, in in uh playing and practicing and uh really doing the right things out there with the fundamentals and really paying attention to their teachings and listening to them. And uh, learning how to play, you know, learning how to play football and knowing that, you know, you're out there to win games. And they're both very competitive, both the coaches, and both Al and Ray both competitive. And uh, I learned a lot from them, you know, especially, you know, in football with catching and running routes and the discipline you had to have for just practicing. You know, just not only playing in a game, but the time you spent on the field practicing was really an important time to get ready for the game. And that's what I always carry through my whole life.
1: You know, it also doesn't hurt to come from the athletic family that you do. Your dad was a boxer, your younger brother, also a multi-sport standout, who went on to play quarterback for the Hurricanes and made it to as high as AAA for the New York Yankees. How many high school teams did you get to play with with your brother, and what was that like for you?
2: Well, I got to play with my bro- brother Bobby two years, because uh, we're two we're two years apart. So I got to play with him in all the sports. Because you know, at that time, everybody played these sports. So, you know, he was a very good baseball player. So you know, we all played baseball. We played baseball together, basketball, football. Even did some track stuff. And uh, so I got to spend two good years with him in high school, playing with him and. Uh, he was, he was a was of an athlete. <laughs> he really was. It was unbelievable. You know, we fought a lot, though. <laughs> you know, but uh, that was the, the, the more important thing is I had a chance to play with my brother.
1: And, 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 that, was and he, that,
2: was, that was a good thing.
1: Was he a quarterback in high school as well?
2: Yes. He was a quarterback in high school, yes. And he, had, he didn't have any favorites, believe me. <laughs> <All right>. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can <laughs> only
1: imagine how many Bolitnikov to Bolitnikov uh, passes were uh, <laughs> recorded on, on those two years. Wow.
2: Well, I'll tell you if I didn't, because my brother was bigger than me, so, you know, I didn't, I didn't talk back to him very often because he was a tough kid, tough guy, believe me. I'll tell you what. So, you know, whatever he called in a everybody did. You know, on a basketball court, the same thing. Baseball, he was outstanding, you know. So, uh, so I got to experience that with him for, for those couple years.
1: So your standout play obviously gets you lots of options for college. What were some of the notable offers and what went into the final decision to attend Florida State University in Tallahassee?
2: Well, you know, I only had, uh, because it wasn't, you know, uh, I, I was a running back in high school for a couple years uh, until my last year, uh, but uh, I went to Michigan State and, you know, visited there and then heard from people at Syracuse and, and at Penn State. Uh, but then, uh, the fella, uh, uh, Ken Myers, who was from my hometown, was the offensive coordinator down at, at Florida State, and he knew Ray Dombrowski, uh, my football coach, very well. And that's basically how I ended up getting down to Florida State, because I, I figured, you know, I wasn't big enough, you know, to play in those schools as a running back, but I had an opportunity to go down uh, to Florida State. But then when I got down to Florida State as a running back, uh, we were, they were shorter receivers. So my, uh, freshman coach, Charlie LaPrade asked me if I wanted to change over to a wide receiver. And I said, yeah, absolutely. Wow. You know, I'd rather do that because there are guys were a lot faster than me down there. And, uh, so that's basically how I got back to being a wide receiver. So, uh, so I didn't have too many, you know, too many options, really. You know, and then the, uh, then the, the thought about going to Florida and playing down there. And, Tallahassee was really enticing for me, so it was, it was a chance for me to go to a different part of the country and be part of a team that threw the ball a lot. Number one, and because our coach Bill Pierce spent a lot of time with Sid Gilman okay. and Al Davis when they were down at Set with the Chargers and got their passing game implemented at Florida State, so you know, so when I uh, when I went down to Florida State, I was already a pro style offense. You know, so it was, it was a good place to be, and something that you know that, that uh, what I always wanted to do and being a chance to go to florida uh was was a great opportunity for me, and that's uh, I went, you know, took the chance.
1: So it's interesting because after several games during your first varsity season, you missed a bunch of them with a broken foot. You played on both sides of the ball your junior season, leading the team in both receptions and interceptions. That year you returned an interception 99 yards for a touchdown off from pass, you know, ironically thrown by George Myra of the Miami right. Hurricanes, a record which stood until 1987 when Deion Sanders broke it by one yard. We had mentioned in the open... Your reputation for running such precise routes. How much did playing both sides of the ball and defending receivers help you later on to run those precise routes?
2: Well, it, it, it helped from from the standpoint that you understood what guys were doing uh, uh, when you're a defensive back covering wide receiver. And the one thing you, you you made sure that you you didn't get sucked up on. Uh, pass. Play action passes, which I did a couple times, and Don James, who was our defensive backfield coach, wasn't very happy with me a few times. But uh, <laughs> you had a good understanding on on uh, on uh, wide receivers and being a defensive back. You know, you learn from that, from having that experience, and then being going on the other side of the ball. Uh, you understood what that defensive back was doing. You had you, you could pick up tendencies. Uh, very easily, you know, watch guys backpedal, watch how guys were physical, how fast they were, what type of coverage they could play. And so it gave you a good deal of knowledge, you know, having, both, bo- play, having that experience of playing on both sides of the ball.
0: You mentioned playing on both sides of the ball. Did, did you feel that, you know, that kind of trope that the receivers are the better athletes with the better hands, did you play into that, or did you think that you were just, you know, doing both for both sides of the, uh, for the team?
2: Well, you just had to do it both sides of the team because at that time you, you had you were kind of forced to play both ways, right. you know, and that you know that still went on for the beginning of my college career, and so you, you you were you were kind of forced to do that, and so that's that's kind of how that came about, you know. So you know, wanting to be over there defensive back, I would rather be a real wide receiver. <laughs> a backs
1: too tough. <laughs> <laughs> As a senior in '64, you lead the nation with 1,179 receiving yards, 15 touchdowns, finished second in receptions with 70, and scoring with 90. One of your touchdowns came in the first quarter against the Florida Gators, which helped the Seminoles earn their first victory in the in-state rivalry, 16 to 7. The Seminoles finished that year with a 36-19 victory over Oklahoma in the Gator Bowl, in which you set school records with 13 receptions for 194 yards and four touchdowns. Even it seems you were always at your best in the biggest of moments on, and the largest of stages. Is that Gator Bowl, uh, was that Gator Bowl the highlight of your Seminoles career?
2: Oh yeah, you know that and, and being able to be, be the first team that beats the University of Florida because that was a big thing for the state, uh, in the state, the state of Florida and, and for, for the school. And then being able to finish off against a, a big-time team like Oklahoma in the Gator Bowl uh you know it kind of it made it really really special uh you know from the standpoint that you know we were finally as a school being recognized nationally, you know we were ranked in the top ten uh and that was the first time and so uh, that that always remained that that always remained special to me, especially you know with the gator bowl and and then for a good period of time having the records and being able uh to see people those records slowly go away after a few years. But, you know, at least you had the opportunity to say, you know, I did set some records in, the, in, the, uh, in a Gator Bowl, you know, in a win over Oklahoma.
1: You know, so you're Florida State's first consensus, All-American in football. You compiled 100 receptions for 1,655 yards, 20 touchdowns in your career with the Seminoles, which at the time were all school records, as you mentioned. At the graduating from FSU, you once again have your choices, as you're selected by the Oakland Raiders in the second round of the 65 AFL draft, 11th overall, and by the Detroit Lions in the third round of the 1965 NFL draft, the 39th overall selection. Why Oakland of the AFL over Detroit of the NFL?
2: well you, you know what it, it it was it was it was it, 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 the decision that I made to go out to Oakland was basically like the decision well the opportunity I had to go down to Florida and with the attractiveness of being with the a f l the young league and seeing how many times they were throwing the football <laughs> and of course you know being with somebody like al davis uh you know was really enticing and going to california was was a uh, Something that really enticed me, and you know, going on the other side of the uh, other side of the country, uh, other side of the United States, you know, so it's it's another opportunity I had to go and do something different, be somewhere different, be part of a different culture, but yet still be part of a football team that kind of fit what I was doing as a receiver, and being able to go and 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 being with being with with Al all those years. And with the AFL and throwing the ball so much, you know, it was just a a good fit. You
1: know, I I know you grew up idolizing uh, Eagles receiver Tommy McDonald, who was actually still playing football when you turned Mm -hmm. pro. What was it about Tommy's game that made him one of your favorites? And although I don't believe you guys, I I, I don't know if you ever played exhibition against each other. I know you never played a regular season game. I'm sure your paths have crossed at some point uh, because of the Hall of Fame. Um, And did you let him know how much he impacted your career?
2: Oh, yeah, you know, when I was back at the Hall of Fame, you know when I got a chance to meet him, I mean, I love as a kid you well, I don't say a kid, but you know when I was younger and started watching Tommy, uh I just loved the way he played, the way he ran routes, his toughness, uh, he was a scrappy guy, and you know, uh I always looked at him as you know his talent was his toughness and being able to go out there and play and compete. And that's what I liked, uh, liked about him. He was just a tough guy. And he was, a, a, to me, he was a great receiver. And then having that opportunity to meet him when I, when I was, finally got into the Hall of Fame, and I told him, and he didn't believe me. He thought I was <laughs> lying to him. And, uh, you know, I always, I always used to tell him, I said, you think I'm kidding you. You think I'm kidding I said, I'm not kidding you. I'll get out of here. <laughs> you know, but, but I did. I really admired the guy.
1: So you mentioned your rookie season. You used primarily on special teams. You didn't see playing time on offense until the seventh game of that year against the Boston Patriots in which you caught seven passes, 118 yards. You mentioned the respect you have for your first head coach in the NFL, who was the legendary Al Davis, which it was his final season as head coach. What do you remember about Al and how he treated you as a rookie and how he set the foundation for what would be a Hall of Fame career for you?
2: Well, you you were you didn't want to make any mistakes. <laughs> that that was a big no no at all. You didn't want to make any mistakes. And uh, well, with with him, uh, he was uh, very disciplined. He was very very knowledgeable. He was really aware and of your spot on the team on what you can contribute to the team. And. Uh, all my career with him, uh, I mean with the Raiders, and starting with him as a head coach, well, was that it? I just stayed in that same role my entire career. And it was, he believed in guys uh, being very comfortable what they were doing. And that just took a lot of hard work, a lot of discipline, a lot of fundamental work. And uh, the day and practice was never over. You know, you always stay out after each practice, no matter what, if it was training camp or uh, during the season. And uh, uh, you, you just learned how to play. You learned how to be tough. You, he wanted people around them, people on his team, well, players on his team, that really had that passion to win. And that's one thing uh, with me. I had that passion to win. I did not like losing one bit. And I was fortunate to be with him when he was a head coach, and then as the owner, uh, to be around somebody like him that hated to, to lose just as much as I hated to lose.
1: Absolutely.
2: And so that's that's was that was the strong thing about our relationship. We both hated to lose. But like I said, you know, he was just a very disciplinarian. We had long practices. He expected a lot out of everybody, and. Uh, he, d- he demanded that you go out there and you play, and you play to win, and uh, you go out there and compete. He, lo- he loved guys that want- wanted to go out there and uh, compete and be tough guys.
1: You know, it's interesting because you're, you also get to play in the final game at Frank Yule Field, which was a temporary home while the Oakland-Alameda County Coliseum was being built. It only sat uh, 22000 and it cost 400000 to build. It's probably the only stadium ever in the history of all sports to be named after an undertaker. But what can you tell our audience about that part of Raiders' history that's really probably been forgotten by a lot of people?
2: Well, you know what, it was a good learning experience because of the fact that, you know, you didn't have first class accommodation. <laughs> you know? Uh, even at, at Frank Yule Field, you know, the the locker room and everything was Quonset huts. <laughs> you know, we practiced at uh uh, the, uh, old Marina High School, which was a condemned high school, and that was our facility where we got dressed. Where we uh, there was one field there we practiced there. If we had to practice anywhere else, we took a bus. And uh, so that that part of it, you know, in playing in at in at in the, at at, the, at Frank Hill Field, was the fact that you know you, you learned that okay, this is it. You know, this is what you have, this is what you deal with, and you adjust to it. And the most important thing is not that locker room or the actual facility or the offices or whatever, but the most important thing was that field, what you did on that field.
1: You know, it's funny. Again, like history, you, we look at franchises and certain names pop up. And obviously in Raiders history, the names Al Davis and John Madden are, are the gold standards. They're the guys that get credit for changing the culture of a team. But I think a guy over the years that's got lost in the shuffle was Coach John Roush. What did he mean to setting the, the foundation for the the Raiders' future success?
2: Oh, John was a tough guy. You know, he was a very good coach. It uh, was... Uh, uh, he was very determined, very stubborn, and he demanded a lot out of you, you know. And uh, he he, w- he was somebody that uh, he, had, he had to win. There's no way around it. You know, he just wanted to win and had to win. And that was John's personality. But overall, you know, he was just a tough guy, a guy that, you know, you just go out there and you do your job and you're fine with. And he didn't take any uh, – you didn't take any BS from anybody, just like Al or John. Okay, both Johns. <laughs>
1: you play under three really different quarterbacks during your career with the Raiders. Tom Flores, Darrell La Monica, Kenny Stabler. You're a your favorite target of all three. But as a receiver, what adjustments did you have to make for each of those guys? And did you have a particular favorite at quarterback?
2: No, you know what? The The, the big thing... That I had, I had, I, you know, when I first started playing with, uh, beginning my career with Tom Flores, you know, Tom was very intelligent. We're still, to this day, great friends. And uh, he was a coach there. Uh, he coached us, the wide receivers. He was, he was the offensive coordinator, uh, basically, for a lot of my career there. And uh, he was just somebody that knew how to throw the football, knew what routes were your routes that you did well at. Uh uh Kenny and I mean La Monica was the same way. Kenny was the same way. And they were just all very, very good guys from the standpoint. I mean good quarterbacks from the standpoint. Uh they knew their personnel. They knew what what in situations on a the field they wanted when that situation came up they knew where they wanted to go with the ball. And that's what we always work for on the field. To get situations where you use the personnel on a team in those situations, and all three of them were great at it, and they were all—all three were great quarterbacks. You know, uh, you know, if you have an opportunity, Mm -hmm. you know, to play the number of years I did in the three quarterbacks, three different quarterbacks, I don't think you find that very often, or wouldn't find it very often if if at all, to be able to have that experience of being with all three of those guys.
1: And then you can throw in George Blander as well. Not too shabby. Yeah,
2: you can throw George in there. Yeah, George would lick his fingers and tell you what he's going to run, and that's it. Let's go.
1: Awesome. It's interesting. That, you know, we also have a live video that goes out, and someone in the chat room wanted to ask this question. This is uh, from Richard Weiss. Which receiver today do you think is most similar to the game you played?
2: Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> well, you'd have to go with guys like like, uh, like Welker You know, guy, guy, got that type of guy. I mean, even though they play inside a lot, you know, that, that type of guy. We got a guy with the Raiders, Hunter Renfro, I think is going to be really an outstanding receiver. And it's all footwork. It's all quickness. It's all catching the ball, but they're all tough. You know, they got great speed and they can run, but they do the things they, they do the things that have to get done, uh, for the team.
0: So you play kind of a secondhand role in, in creating an NFL rule with what is known as the Lester Hayes rule and stickum. Yeah. So can you explain a little bit about what stickum was? Once it was banned also, were there ways that you used it or found a way around it? And then to end it, what do you think of the gloves that players use these days and how similar they might be to that tact that they allowed you?
2: Well, at that time, when we used the stickum, there were no rules for it, of not being able to use it. And... uh with the gloves now, geez, I wish I had the gloves. I mean, you'd have to take off that stick with, uh with paint thinner, which wasn't a whole lot of fun. You couldn't smoke <laughs> around it when you were taking it off. You'd yourself on fire. But, uh, but yeah, the, the gloves, I mean, I'll tell you what, people would be surprised what an advantage it is to have those gloves. You know, people thought, you know, you always get thrown up with the stick the to stick but, you know, with these gloves, it's amazing you know it really is amazing what what uh, the that's uh how it helps out with with the receivers with anybody that wears them if you if you're handling the football you know it's it really is amazing but you know to stick it was something that was uh come up we got it out of San Diego or uh, our equipment manager Dick Romance, he got out of San Diego and uh, uh a guy named Speedy Duncan who was a defensive back and punt returner for those guys was using it, and that's where we first saw it. That's where Dick first saw it, and that's how basically we got around to it. So it really is Speedy's fault.
1: Well, you know what? I have to tell you, we we got to commend Richard Weiss because he he's throwing some great questions in the chat room. So he wants to know if there was any quarterback tougher than going up against Lester Hayes in practice.
2: No, no. <laughs> you know, he when you when you had to go in practice, and luckily, you know, Lester was still young enough then, you know uh... going against like Woolie brown and that that was tough you know so you had a good uh... you had a tough time in practice especially well especially in training camp you know because training camp was just all physical and going you know let's go for it you know that type of thing All, all always physical you know and then the great thing with with with, with al he always had uh, like Tatum had to go out there and play corner at training camp at times. George Atkinson did, you know. We had Nehemiah Wilson and uh, Doctor Death, and so you were playing a guy against guys that were bigger than you. Number one, and really physical players. So you were used to playing against anybody in, in the NFL or, or AFL. Or be, when the merger came, so it wasn't uh, you weren't getting caught off guard. Against playing somebody that was tough, because you were always competing against these guys. Like I said, in training camp, all through training camp, and even at times a couple, uh, one or one or two days a week in in during the season. So that's kind of what really got you prepared for these teams. And you know, thank God we had those guys because you know they're all outstanding defensive backs.
1: Jesus. So here in New York, we got to see you a lot, whether it be on Monday Night Football or lots of games of the week, but you were part of two memorable games here in New York. You caught the game-tying touchdown to make the score 29-29 in the fourth quarter. Uh, With a minute five, Jim Turner kicked the field goal to put the Jets ahead 32-29 in a game that will forever be known as the Heidi game. Then (laughs) six weeks later, you would meet the Jets in the AFL championship game, a game that Jets would win 27-23 to go on to win the Super Bowl after that. What are your recollections uh, of that for New York Jet fans? Pretty iconic games in their history as well.
2: Well, with the Heidi game, you know, they, you, know you, you finally had the networks learning not to shut off a game <laughs> to make sure they watch it all the way through. And then, of course, you know, being uh, in a that game in Oakland, you know, the comeback that we made, you know, it always, to this day, it always tells you, you know, no matter how much time is left on the clock, something can happen. Because when people start, when that ball starts rolling, when that big boulder starts rolling downhill, there's nothing stopping it. And that's what happened when we won the Heidi game. And then going back and playing in the championship game against the Jets uh, was memorable because, you know, we, we had a chance. I mean, we were right there. And the only thing that happened is they had, uh, they had Joe, you know. <laughs> So uh, it was a uh, team that uh, had, uh, both teams had great defenses, great running backs, excellent passing games, and everybody on the field was, was outstanding players. And go back there and play on that, uh, well, at that time in the wintertime, the dirt field, you know, at Shea Stadium, which was yep. the big place you always wanted to be at, and obviously, and play in New York you know it was it was two teams competing against each other wanting to win
1: and that wind comes in, you know, it comes <laughs> in and open. but <laughs> the it, yeah, everything. everything. Yeah. Open field, yeah, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, we mentioned previously how you always rise to the occasion. When you left the NFL, you were the all-time leader in postseason receptions with 70, receiving yards with 1,167, receiving touchdowns, and accumulated over 19 postseason games. Um, you recorded over 100 receiving yards in the postseason five times. In the 76-77 playoffs, you recorded 13 receptions for 216 yards and a touchdown. That included four catches for 79 yards to set up three Oakland scores in the Raiders' 32-14 victory in Super Bowl XI, for which you were named Super Bowl MVP. Uh, We've been lucky enough to have many players who have played in the Super Bowl and love hearing their recollections about the day. You played in two of them, so can you tell us what you recall most about the entire Super Bowl experience? Aside from the outcomes, how different was Super Bowl II from XI, and what did winning the MVP in a Super Bowl mean?
2: Well, you know what when you when you're playing all of a sudden when you're you're playing against Green Bay and you're on that sideline you look across and you're doing your pre-game warm up and you look at all the players that are on on Green Bay's team and they're just nothing but legends from the coach all the way through and uh you especially I was a young kid, you know, hadn't played that much up until then and uh now to be down there in Miami playing against these guys, it was it was an experience. And the thing about it is that we, you know, we had a chance. I mean, uh, you know, Herb uh, jumped in front of me and picked one off and ran sixty some yards for a touchdown, which wasn't too enjoyable or a memory for me. But uh, that was just part of the game. But that that was that was the Green Bay Packers. And then to be able to come back years later and play in a Super Bowl and uh win it where all the years that we had gotten so close with championship games and for one reason or another reason losing a lot of those championship games to go to the Super Bowl uh to be able to finally get there and win it was just unbelievable and then you know being MVP you know it was something that you know I I I rep I rep represent the Oakland Raiders and that football team uh, with the MVP, uh, MVP till this day, you know that was uh, that was uh, very honorable for me to be to be named that, and it was really a, a great honor for me to represent those guys as their MVP.
1: You know, you're inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame July 30th, 1988. You're number two all-time in the history of silver and black with 589 career catches. you ranked fourth on the NFL all-time receiving list at the time of your retirement. You held NFL record of 10 straight seasons with um, 40 or more receptions. Your Raiders, uh, lead, you led the Raiders in receiving six consecutive seasons. You led the NFL in receiving with 61 catches in 1971. led the AFC in 72. You played 190 games in 14 seasons, had 21 100-receiving-yard games, had four 100-yard receiving games in the playoffs. You never had a losing season with the Raiders. You are named to the Walter Camp All-Century Team. An award in your name goes to the nation's top collegiate wide receiver. I'm sure there's even more things that you did that I left out. But looking (laughs) at everything that you've accomplished in your career in the game of football, what's the one thing that gives you the most pride?
2: Oh, boy. (laughs) <laughs> well, it was you know what? It was the fact that uh, I made the right choice going out to Oakland from Florida State, number one, and then being able to be on a team that you had a good relationship with everybody. We had such great camaraderie on that team, and to be able to play with all the great ballplayers on that team uh, and be around guys for 14 years, and that's what's that's that is always in my mind about the years playing and what it meant to me, and so i I was very you know very thrilled with the fact that you know I got to play in some of the biggest games and memorable memorable games in the NFL history, got to play in two Super Bowls, got to play in numerous playoff games. And got to be an MVP.
1: <laughs> not too shabby. So you said? Start-
2: no, really. no, you said th- you know something. You talk about things that uh, that you. I don't even know if you can dream <laughs> of some of those things. You know, probably the majority of the things uh, when you're a young guy, even in college, when you start thinking about like going and playing professional football. You know, someone said, "What would you like to have happen?" I don't think you can mention. 75% of those things, you <laughs> no. and it happened, Yeah, and um, I'm very proud of it, I'm very proud of it, and I'm very proud of, you know, like I keep saying, I'm very proud of all the guys I was able to play with.
0: So you spent 13 years with the team as a player, 14, but, um, but also another 17 as a coach, so as the rumors surrounded the team potentially leaving and heading to Las Vegas, what was your initial reaction when you found out that that deal was done and the Raiders were leaving? The Bay
2: Area. Well, you know what? I'll tell you what. It's it's uh, like, you know, obviously that being at the last game in Oakland uh, last year, you know, it's very touching. It's very memorable. It's, uh, you know, going being down on the sideline watching pregame warm up all the time when I watch the game, go to see the games, uh, to see that you know we were the first ones to play in that stadium. When it was brand new, and everybody loved it, now they call it a dump <laughs> and to me it was still there's the field you know, and there's the stands and there's the locker room and it was very sad from that standpoint, very emotional and then going going to las vegas that's that's just part of business part of life and sure it's you know it was, it was very sad to to know that you know the team's going down to las Vegas but You know, there's. Listen, if that's the worst thing that happens in your life, that's not too bad.
1: Um, Just also in the chat room, I guess uh, he wanted to give you a shout-out. It's David Guineer, who I know is a huge Raiders fan. He said hello from your friends uh, from SBE at Peter Dillon's in New York City. So I wanted to get that in there.
2: Oh good, tell him hello. Okay. Yeah, he's listening,
1: so he he heard you. Um, So as much as you accomplished on the field, you've done so many wonderful things off the field. As in 1999, you established the Bolitnikov Foundation, which has funded and supported many youth groups and organizations in Northern California, including the Bolitnikoff Foundation Scholarship Award, Tracy's Place of Hope, and the Bolitnikov Center for Hope. Can you tell our audience a little bit about the foundation and how they can help the foundation out as well?
2: Well, you go, first of all, you go on Bolitnikoff.org and I'll take you to everything that we've done over all the years. But uh, being able to be part of something that uh, you are helping girls' young lives or kids' young lives and helping you get through tough situations by just being around them, letting them be uh wanted, you know, wanting to do something for them because we deal with a lot of high risk kids and the stuff that we deal with or a foundation, but we also see from the beginning, uh uh they are one way and then after a few months you see a total different person. And and we've had so many uh, girls graduate out of the program from Kona Nia that we help helped support uh, with Tracy's Place of Hope and the center that we're just getting finished now. Uh, to see those girls and see that the things that they had to go through in life and the tragedy that they had to deal with, I, I don't know how, to, how they do it. I don't know. Uh, you look at them and I think even like with my daughter Tracy, she was an addict, and what, her, what she did to get clean and sober, and then to watch these girls on their journey and see the things that happen to them and how they develop and how they are turning around their lives, they have to make such a big decision and something that uh, I don't know how many people, I don't know how all of us would have that strength to do it, but they do it, and even though that there is a uh, portion of their life that they've missed out on, they're willing to try to battle back and live the rest of their life because they see more. They get to see uh, a different picture down the road than uh, a lot of people, a lot of us. You know, and they know that at the end of the road there's a lot of good things that can happen, can happen for them, and we're part of that, and we love it. I mean, we love being seeing these kids, uh, uh, like I said, coming from such uh, tragic things in their life, and how they developed and work and work out of it, and work for something that they missed.
1: And, you know, and people don't realize this because everyone, and as well, we should be, you know, worried about first responders and giving to charity to help people out, and especially now with what's going on in the world, but now more than ever, especially people that are dealing with addiction, it's a very isolating time, so it's just as important to, to look out for those charities, so please if you're listening, you know, I, I know that every bid helps for all these charities it's important, like Fred said, go out to blitnikoff.org and help them out evidently, uh, David just put in the chat room that their Crab their Fest dinner you know, fundraisers are legendary, so you know somehow I'm going to have to get out there for one, because that, that sounds like, like a party to me But uh, <laughs> it is. it's a Listen, it's a very
2: good. We've been doing it for so long, and we have our golf tournament coming up in the middle of July. Hopefully, that you know that's going to all work out. And uh, but the crab feed, uh, the crab feed, something special. So is the golf tournament, but uh, that crab feed, we have a great time.
1: Awesome. Mr. Bulletnikov, thank you so much. This is an interview I've been looking forward to many years, and I've tried to set this up because you were one of my favorites. And, and, and it's funny because you have a whole bunch of Long Island guys, you know, from my <laughs> high school that love the way you played. One of our, our guys was nicknamed after you um, because of the way he would always catch the ball. So um, it really was special to have you on here with us tonight. Really appreciate it, and especially I believe today's your anniversary as well, right?
2: It is, yep. And uh, we're going out to dinner. In about an hour, absolutely. Yeah, no cooking at home tonight. There's a restaurant that's open, so we're going out there for dinner. But listen, thank you guys, and it really, it really means a lot to me. You know, the you guys have you know followed my career, and uh, it's very special for me to be on with you guys. Believe me, it really is.
1: Absolutely a pleasure for us. Thank you so much, and have a great anniversary. Enjoy your dinner.
2: Okay, thank you. You guys take care of yourselves.
1: You too, the legendary right. Fred Bolitnikov. Just great. You know. Class on the field, off the field, there's nothing else we can say. I mean, that interview pretty much said everything about the man that that needs to be said.